Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. My name is John Moorhead. I'm the uh, director of Multi-Faith Matters, and this is the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. Whether you're listening uh, via audio or whether you're watching on YouTube, whatever venue you choose to partake, we're glad that you're here. This is not the only uh, resource that we have. If you go to our website at multifaithmatters.org, you'll find a variety of resources, not only other podcasts, touching on a variety of areas in regards to multi-faith engagement, but recommended books and articles, our consulting services, all of this is designed to help evangelical Christians and other Christians as well, not only fulfill the great uh, commission, but also the great commandments to love God and to love our neighbors. And in the context of what we do here, in particular, our multi-faith neighbors. So with that, we'll move from our general introduction to the podcast to introducing uh, my special guest today, My conversation partner is James Calvin Davis, and uh, I'll read his bio. Uh, He is the George Adams Ellis Professor of Liberal Arts and Religion at Middlebury College in Vermont, where he taught ethics and Christian studies for 20 years. He's the author of five books on the relationship between Christianity and public life in the United States, um, through history and in our moment. So he covers quite a bit of ground there. Davis's first two books focused on Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island and America's earliest advocate for religious freedom. In his subsequent books, In Defense of Civility and Forbearance, Davis advocates for respectful negotiation of differences as a reflection of good democratic virtue and faithful Christian ethics. His most recent book to be released this spring is titled American Liturgy, Finding Theological Meaning in the Holy Days of U.S. Culture. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I found uh, James uh, through my ongoing uh, interest in and research in Roger Williams. Uh, I think uh, this will hopefully become evident over the course of our conversation that he is a a remarkable figure historically, a a remarkable Christian figure. And he is one I think that many Christians, particularly most evangelicals, don't even know about. So we're going to unpack that today and get to know him. Um, to begin, James, can you uh, summarize and sketch, uh, tell us something about Roger Williams. He's called our forgotten founding father, and yet most evangelicals, uh, Christians, have never even heard about him. Who, who was he? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. He's a forgotten uh, man, not, not just among Christians, but in American history uh, a lot of times. Um, well, Williams was uh, Williams lived in the 17th century. Um, we don't know exactly when um, for, for absolute sure, but most historians think he was born in 1603 and he died in 1683. Um, and Williams was uh, a Puritan. Um, uh, he was among those first waves of Puritans that came uh, and saddle, uh, settled uh, in New England in the Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony in the 17th century. Um, Williams is notable because uh, he um, came to Massachusetts Bay and he very quickly 
got on the wrong side of the Puritan authorities uh, for a variety of, of reasons, um, a number of issues really that he insisted on publicly debating with the authorities. One was his vision of the church. Uh, he thought the Puritans who were a reform movement in the Church of England, that's how they got their name. They, were, they wanted to purify the Church of England. He thought they weren't going far enough. And that in fact, um, they were wrong in thinking that they could salvage anything uh, in the Church of England. He belonged to a subgroup of Puritans called separatists who really thought the most faithful, faithful thing for Christians to do was just consider the Church of England apostate, um, remove themselves from the Church of England and, and form more faithful communities. So that, um, that ecclesiology, that, that theology of the church got him into a lot of trouble, um, as well as a number of other issues. Uh, and then he was so publicly outspoken and such a pain for the Puritan authorities, they eventually banished him. Uh, they were going to send him back to, uh, to England, but he got a heads up. And so he uh, left uh, Massachusetts. He famously survived a winter in the New England wilderness with the help of uh, some Native American friends of his, eventually found himself uh, where uh, Rhode Island uh, presently is, founded the town of Providence, uh, and eventually the colony of Rhode Island was built around that town. And from there, he continued to pick at the Puritan authorities, but then he, uh, and eventually his bone of contention with them shifted um, from separatism to religious freedom. Uh, for he thought that in being exiled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony over his ecclesiology, he felt that the Puritan establishment in Massachusetts had, had confused spiritual matters and civil matters, spiritual authority and civil authority. And so in kicking him out for what, was, what he considered essentially a religious debate, um, that they had violated a fundamental notion of um, religious freedom and the separation of church and state. And that became a principal um, tenant of the Rhode Island colony that he founded and helped lead for most of his life. And of course, if anybody remembers Rhode Island or um, Roger Williams in history, that's what they remember uh, him for, that principle of religious freedom. Yeah, I think uh, uh, he's just a fascinating character. And I hope that listeners and viewers I want them to be attentive as they're, they're listening to this conversation. Um, I think that Williams has application on the one hand, not only to how we relate to religious others in terms of multi-faith engagement, but also in this present uh, time of the great political divide, especially in a post-Trump era, I think uh, he has much to say about how we can, can still talk meaningfully to each other uh, through deep uh, political as well as religious difference. So uh, people I hope are gonna be attentive to that. Um, one of the things I've discovered in my research and in my experience in the evangelical community is that there tends to be a strong negative and oppositional stance to those that we disagree with in other religious traditions. Um, and I wanna note that both, it's not only theological, it's also emotional. We, there are these strong negative feelings, which then I think leads to the development of a theology that justifies how we already feel negatively about the other. So it's not just this pure, I go to the biblical text, I find this is what the Bible says about how I'm supposed to relate to others. We kind of find, I think, theologically what we're already emotionally predisposed to find. And so we're trying to work our way through that. 
So there are a lot of assumptions for evangelicals there. The only way to be a good Bible-believing conservative Christian is to take this strong oppositional stance where not only I condemn the other in terms of their theological beliefs and where I may think they're going in terms of an eternal destiny, but also uh, there can be some dehumanization and and things that go along like that. Um, And yet Roger Williams uh, had strong commitments to his faith and he modeled a very different way. What was his way of engaging others like? Yeah, absolutely, uh, John. I think this is one of the reasons why Williams is such a fascinating character and so useful uh, for us to recover in our time and place. Because on the one hand, you're exactly right. Roger Williams was not ambiguous about what he believed. Um, he was a Calvinist, um, a Puritan, and he was an especially strict Puritan Calvinist, especially when it came around this, this um, idea of the purity of the church. Uh, he really believed that the church should be a community of people who lived faithfully, and he really wanted to minimize the wheat and tares within the church. So he had a very pure and particular understanding of Christianity, and he was deeply committed to that. You could argue he was a fundamentalist in the sense that he believed some things were really um, essential and true about his interpretation of Christianity. And on that basis, he not only um, theologically rejected the religion of uh, Native Americans, Roman Catholics, um, the lack of uh, religiosity among atheists, Quakers, but he also thought the majority of the his fellow Puritans were going to hell too. So he, theologically, he was quite exclusive. And yet, Williams believed that he could um, engage Uh, respectfully uh, cooperate with, um, establish deep friendships uh, with people he disagreed with theologically. And he did that his entire life. One of the most noteworthy sets of friendships he had was with the Native Americans whose religion he utterly rejected. And yet that didn't stand in the way uh, of him being able to see them as fellow human beings, as moral beings, and to respect them and, and cooperate with them. And love them. Can you talk a little bit more about his his theological commitments? I mean, one of the the charges folks like me get a lot of times from conservative Christians when we try to articulate and model a different approach, much like Williams, is that well, you're compromising Scripture. Uh, you must be liberal. You're a compromiser. You're a syncretist. You're combining. Christian teachings, again, you're compromising the purity with other religious traditions. In fact, I was saddened, uh, a colleague of mine uh, uh, has produced a great video on multi-faith engagement where he works as a Christian uh, without compromise with uh, a rabbi and with a Muslim cleric. And uh, they're talking about the importance of multi-faith engagement. And if you look at the, the comment section as they promote this video, those are the charges that conservative Christians are making. Uh, what were what were the commitments of Roger Williams like in terms of his theology? You said he he had a deep commitment to his faith. Was he compromising his understanding of the Bible in order to have this kind of way of relating to others? Yeah, absolutely not, uh, John. And if anyone wanted to challenge Roger Williams on an affinity to the Bible, good luck with that. Um, because Williams, we have the benefit of a lot of um, letters and treatises that he wrote in a in a lifelong back and forth with some Puritan leadership about the different disagreements that um, uh, that they held between them. And he is constantly appealing to scripture, doing 
what amounts to proof texting, um, pulling out example after example after example of scriptural texts that he believes reinforce both his understanding of the purity of the faith and also justify his respect for, uh, for others. So he thought his was a, um, a biblically defensible uh, uh, position. The way he gets at that is he appeals to um, an idea that it, um, gets some traction in his Calvinist tradition, and that is the idea of natural law. Um, for Williams, the others, even the others, the, the non-Christians or the non-right Christians um, in his view, all of those others with whom he potentially engaged, he thought it was fairly clear theologically that they were children of God. They were children of God um, created by God with a natural capacity to be moral, to be good civil citizens, um, to be peaceful, to be productive. Um, and to be friends. And as a Christian, he, he recognized this in those others, and he attribu attributed that goodness that he saw in others, in non-Christians, he attributed that goodness to God. And because he saw God as the origin, not only of good Christianity, but of good moral human beings, that gave him not only permission, but obligation to relate to them with respect um, and to value them as uh, as, as children of God. So it was a very theological basis for him on how he could hold these two things together, a deep Christian faith and a mutual respect for people who don't identify with that faith. I appreciate that. I hope folks, again, are, are picking up on this, that one can have a, a solid commitment to their faith, uh, scriptural grounding, and yet engage in another kind of way of relating to others that doesn't involve compromise. And Williams was a, a great historical example that I think Christians can look to in that regard. Um, yeah. Let's talk about religious freedom. Um, this is uh, something that's of great interest to me, uh, particularly in our time. You've got a chapter in your book that I am, have really enjoyed, The Moral Theology of Roger Williams, Christian Convictions and Public Ethics. And there's a title in there uh, of one of the chapters uh, that deals with incarnational theology and religious freedom. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about religious freedom and national discourse under the prior Trump administration. Um, that will be changed, obviously, under the Biden administration as to what that looks like. Evangelicals talk a lot about religious freedom, but in my estimation, it seems to be directed lar largely at their own concerns, um, which really has manifested in a lot of uh, Christian privilege. Um, what was Williams's understanding of religious freedom and how does it connect to that idea of incarnational theology? And then how do we connect the dots between what he was trying to do to our debates and our questions about religious freedom today? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, uh, John, a uh, complicated one. Let me yeah, see if yeah. I can unpack a couple of uh, facets of it. Uh, when I say incar incarnational theology, what I mean by that is that Williams, for Williams, Christ was the centerpiece of his theology, of his worldview. Um, both the person of Christ and what we might call the event of Christ, what God did in Christ. Um, and so that's, that was the axis uh, around which his entire theology operated. And he drew a couple of things from that in his theology. One is he thought pretty obviously that um, Jesus Christ offered uh, the template for the good moral life. Um, and that informed his, um, both his sense of what is good Christian ethics, but also what is good um, mutual regard for other human beings 
outside the church. Um, he, he, he drew from the pattern of, of Christ, from the life of Christ for that. He also believed that Christ was the center of salvation history, uh, um, that the event of Christ, uh, God um, raising Christ from the dead was um, the recipe for salvation. That informed his theology as well. So again, there he's very traditional uh, uh, in his theology. What's also interesting, uh, though, is he draws from, um, from the incarnation, from God's desire to become human. He draws from that um, an endorsement of the human project. Um, he thought that was essentially God saying, I have created human beings good. They are good. They, um, and so in order to save them, I will become human. I think that's profound for Williams because I think that's part of the theological permission that he has to respect the goodness, to respect the, the um, imago dei, the image of God in other people, regardless of their um, religious uh, subscription too. So the, the, the focus on the incarnation as the centerpiece of his theology um, shapes both his traditional tenets and also his regard for people outside the church in, in a, a number of ways. Um, it also, I think, um, uh, informed his doctrine of religious freedom uh, because he saw the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ as like a, um, a watershed moment in, in the history of salvation. Um, the Puritans, all, most of the Puritans all around him were um, regarding um, the salvation, uh, the, the, the person of Christ is, is like a confirmation of um, uh, a covenant with God that was first established with um, the nation Israel in the Old Testament. So it was, in some ways, it was an intensification, but more of the same, of God's relationship uh, with God's elect. Williams thought, no, it's, it was a game changer, um, that it changed the rules of the game, um, that when, when God became human in Christ, God essentially established a new kind of covenant. Uh, with uh, God's elect. And one of the implications of that for Williams was that that meant the end to God playing most favored nation status with a civil society. Um, and so while the Puritans would look back in the Old Testament and would say, oh yeah, the conflation of religion and civil society, what we're doing in Massachusetts Bay is just what the nation of Israel did. It's what it means to live in covenant with God. Williams said, no, that's not our pattern anymore. Our pattern is Christ, and therefore he was deeply suspicious of all of these attempts to collapse um, religion and civil authority in the Puritan um, in, in the Puritan colony. And I think it's partly from that suspicion, that conflation, that his doctrine of religious freedom uh, derives. He thought it was a fundamentally wrong thing for Christians to hope for that a civil society and a religious society would be collapsed together. Hmm. As, as we connect the dots between his views and what how this might apply in contemporary society, I can't help but think of, I think one of the things that problematizes our current situation for Christians is the, the ideology of Christian nationalism, the idea that this was founded as a Christian country. Uh, in fact, uh, there's an interesting Pew survey, uh, a high percentage of Christians think in order to be considered a true American, one has to be Christian. And that's a part of that Christian nationalism narrative. We've seen 
a lot of work has been done looking at uh, how Christian nationalism has been associated with a lot of negatives like anti-immigrant uh, stances, racism. Yep. It, it's been a problem for white evangelicalism in particular during the Trump administration. And yet if I'm hearing your, your discussion of Williams correctly, he would not agree with a narrative like that. With, with those trying to collapse the, the sacred state, the favored nation with what it means to be a civil government, c can we unpack and apply Williams's view and see how it might connect to, to the, our current status with the problem of Christian nationalism? Yeah, you're exactly right, John. Uh, uh, Williams would break out in hives over the idea of a Christian nation. He just, he thought that was um, ridiculous. Um, uh, it, for a number of reasons. He thought that um, to baptize the civil society in the name of Christianity was to collapse the sacred and the profane. It was to essentially to pollute good Christianity, uh, to put it in bed with civil society. Um, he thought they were uh, created by God. Church and state were created by God for very different purposes, very different ends. And while the church's mission was to be pure and to preach the gospel, so, uh, civil society had a much different mission, and that was um, to allow all inhabitants to live peaceably and to live lives of human flourishing. So for him, the idea that um, uh, you could have a Christian nation uh, pushed together two things that were meant for very uh, different purposes, uh, it came at the cost of um, the authenticity of Christian faith because it puts um, it puts the church into in bed with uh, politics. And he also, interestingly, argued explicitly that it, it um, wastes political um, uh, skills um, because it ignores or restricts um, non-Christian or non-faithful citizens from um, serving in political office and serving the civil society, too. So he thought it was not only bad Christianity, it was bad civil politics uh, too to collapse uh, the two. Um, so I think, I mean, thinking about Williams' vision today, he would think that all of this language of uh, Christian nation was theologically and politically wrongheaded. Not to mention historically uh, as well, uh, well, since the the um, the legacy of piety of the so-called Christian nation in the United States is spotted to say the least. There have been various ways in which uh, this nationalism, Christian nationalism narrative has manifested itself in Christian views in America on religious freedom. You've had uh, Christians who have opposed, actively opposed mosque construction, uh, trying to prevent others from building places of worship. Um, when we have uh, Christian Ten Commandments monuments or crosses in public spaces, we don't mind that until a minority religious tradition uh, whether it's an atheist or uh, the satanic temple, then challenges and takes us to court and wants the, uh, an equal place in a public square. And then the fascinating thing is Christians, instead of allowing this equality across the board in public space is taken down there. there. So the idea is if, if I can't have mine there alone, then nobody's going to have theirs there. Um, yeah, we yeah. don't mind prayers that open uh, civil meetings until an atheist or a Satanist comes along and says, I would like to open it with a moment of silence or some kind of alternative invocation. So we're, we're using this Christian nationalism narrative, this idea to withhold religious freedom from others. 
Is that something that we can find parallels in Roger Williams? Did he try to restrict religious freedom to certain denominational expressions of Christianity he approved of, or, or was he supportive of freedom for others? Uh, his was a much more um, universal application of religious uh, freedom. He's really unusual for his time, and he's pretty distinct uh, in, in ours too, but um, unlike virtually anybody I can think in, of in the 17th century, um, he was arguing for religious freedom, not just for different sects of Christians, but for Catholics. That may seem not so radical to us in our time, but Roman Catholics were deeply distrusted uh, among Protestants in the 17th century. They were seen to be just essentially in legion with the Pope in Rome and uh, both uh, theologically suspect and politically subversive. And he said they should have uh, religious freedom. He argued for religious freedom for Jews. He argued for religious freedom for what he would call pagans, the Native Americans. Um, and he argued for religious freedom for atheists. And atheists were, um, were very suspicious as well because among other things, it was widely held in, in Christian Europe in the 17th century that uh, atheists couldn't be trusted because they, they can't hold promises because a promise is an oath to God. And if you don't believe in God, your promise is worth nothing. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, Williams rejected all of that um, and said, if, if an atheist can demonstrate that um, he is um, trustworthy and reliable and honest and cooperative, then why should he not have the freedom to, um, to um, exercise and experience his lack of religion? And we should say too that Williams the, the, the expanse of Williams um, affording religious freedom to even non-Protestants, non-Christians and atheists goes well beyond some other people who get a whole lot more press time on the question of religious freedom, namely John Locke, who, who reflected his own um, time when he uh, argued for religious freedom for most Englishmen, but not Catholics, uh, not Muslims, and not uh, atheists for the reasons I just mentioned. So Williams is really radical, even uh, for in his time, and, and as you suggested, maybe even in our time, for just how unwilling he was to put an asterisk uh, on the doctrine of religious freedom. Let's talk about uh, civility. Um, we certainly do not live in a time of civility, uh, particularly in political discourse, but even in religious discourse. We have seen some interest in some segments of evangelicalism, a, a discussion of civility. Uh, Rich Mao, a full, a formerly of Fuller Seminary, has been uh, one of those advocates of that. Uh, that's been modeled in Mormon evangelical dialogue. So you've got that, that one small emphasis. But then you've got much, much more representation in evangelicalism, kind of a lock and load approach that the only, the only true way in which to relate to others is just to let them have it. Um, and there may be a concern out there that if I'm civil, that that's somehow the assumption is that I'm not really going to tell them what I feel. I'm going to hold back on some of my commitments. Um, what was Williams's approach to civility? As I understand him, um, he was respectful in his conversations and of others, and yet that didn't stop him from sharing his uh, strong theological differences uh, with others. Uh, help, help me understand that. Uh, that's exactly right. I, this, this, I've, I've written a bunch in the last, especially in the last 10 years or so, on um, what I too call uh, civility. Uh, and I, I stole that term or I inherited that term from my, discovered that term from my um, 
my research and my work on Roger Williams because he uses that term as well. Um, and for Williams, um, civility was an extension of that doctrine of natural law that we talked about before. Um, if my theology requires me to see in others the reflection of God, uh, the creation of God, the goodness of God, and therefore um, some intrinsic worth and some uh, an obligation to moral respect, then what I owe them um, is a certain amount of um, virtuous interaction. And, and that's what he thought civility was. Civility was um, the, the set of virtues with which we ought to relate to one another. And he did not restrict that within the church to fellow Christians, but the virtues with which I should interact with all human beings. Um, and he, as you said, um, he did not keep that from, um, from just uh, exhaustively debating the points of contention between him and the Puritan authorities early in his career or between himself and the Quakers who were hanging out in Rhode Island and causing him much consternation in the latter half of his career. We have volumes and volumes of accounts of Roger Williams arguing with them incessantly about um, all kinds of points uh, and, and being adamant that he is right uh, in his view and they are wrong. And yet he does all of that constant engagement um, with respect with honesty, with integrity. And that really for Williams was the heart uh, of civility and was what he owed his fellow human beings by virtue of seeing them as children of God. Not to put you on the spot, but can you, uh, you've, you've referenced in passing some examples of him doing that. Can you think of one or two that might stand out for you as an example so we can kind of move from a general discussion so folks can see an example of how this panned out? Yeah, the Quaker example is the best example. So um, uh, later in his career, uh, Williams, after establishing uh, Providence, is, uh, serves as governor and as a de facto head in, in the colony for, for most of the second half of, of his life. Um, and of course, he establishes this colony on religious freedom. Um, so all of the other people getting kicked out of Massachusetts Bay and the other Puritan colonies end up gravitating toward Rhode Island. They're all coming there because it's a place to enjoy your religious freedom. But when everybody starts exercising their religious freedom, sometimes chaos uh, can ensue. And the Quakers of the 17th century, they weren't the genteel oatmeal box uh, Quakers that we might think of uh, today. Quakers were a radical social uh, movement as much as a, a religious movement. And they tended to poke at social conventions for the, for the purpose of, of, of public protest. Um, and the Quakers who showed up in Rhode Island were no different. They got there and they were constantly agitating uh, conventions. They would, um, they would interrupt uh, public meetings. They would wear their hair uh, long, which Williams and others thought was a violation of public um, uh, standards of, of modesty. They would interrupt people constantly. There were even reports that they would run through the streets naked as a, as a matter of uh, social protest. Uh, so he felt compelled to engage them about why their beliefs and their practices were wrong. But as the as a leader in Rhode Island, he could have invoked civil restrictions uh, on them, but he didn't uh, in, uh, uh, out of um, respect for their religious freedom. 
Instead, he debated them. But part of the debate was that he was arguing they were failing to exhibit these virtues of civility to their fellow Rhode Islanders in the way that they were um, constantly publicly agitating, that they were failing to show uh, respect for others. And it's in that disagreement with the Quakers that Williams both um, discusses and helps explain what he has in mind in civility, but also demonstrates it by by patiently arguing and arguing and arguing over a course of several days with them, rather than just simply invoking the civil authorities on them. Hmm. That's helpful. Uh, at, uh, at Multi-Faith Matters, which is a part of uh, the evangelical chapter of a larger organization called the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, uh, we don't practice interfaith, um, which, and this is a generalization, and there's always exceptions to generalizations, but interfaith in my uh, estimation tends to focus on commonality, um, not a whole lot of discussion of difference. In fact, differences uh, may not matter. They may not even be real. It just that these religious differences appear to be so, but they're ultimately reconciled somehow. And so there's not a lot of discussion of deep difference and certainly attempts at persuasion, mutual persuasion, evangelism, that's off the table. It's often considered unethical. In a, a religious diplomacy or multi-faith engagement approach, we believe that uh, difference is important. In fact, discussion of differences may be more important than discussions of commonality. doesn't mean that's all that you focus on because we have to have something in common, um, but we can't ignore those differences at the same time. We have to discuss and recognize it. And even those deep differences may not, are probably not gonna be ultimately resolved. We have to hold them in a peaceful tension and work together for the common good despite those differences. And we're also open to mutual persuasion of each other because we have strong commitments. So there are reasons why we follow the faith traditions that we do. We want to see others embrace it when it's welcomed and done in ethical manner. Um, that's what we're about. That's the model we're trying to put forward. Uh, I don't want to appropriate Roger Williams uh, against an appropriate understanding of what he's trying to do, but it sounds like he was almost doing a multi-faith engagement approach along those lines back in that time. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that is fair. I, I, I think there's a, a lot about Williams's approach that is compatible with what you've described as a multi-faith approach, uh, because the stereotype, and you're right, it, there's more uh, variation in it than maybe the stereotype represents, but the stereotype of interfaith dialogue may be that's, um, that we look for a lowest common denominator that we can all uh, agree on, right? And where we can't agree, we push those disagreements um, to the side so that they don't impede our relationship with, uh, with one another. That's not what Williams was doing. Uh, Williams was doing something much more akin to what you've described as multi-faith. He was thinking we can argue all day about finer points of theology uh, from sun up to sundown, and then in the evening get together and um, talk about civil order, um, talk about uh, whether we need uh, a militia to defend the uh, colony against um, uh, um, threats uh, uh, beyond its borders, whether we need to talk about um, raising a tax uh, to support um, uh, getting a charter from the king. He thought you could do both things um, and that doing those civil projects together did not require that you artificially ignore the differences and the disagreements and in fact, that it was healthy to engage those uh, differences and disagreements. So, so in Williams, um, Rhode Island, you have nothing that looks like 
what I think Richard John Newhouse once called the naked public square, right, right. where you're not allowed, where you're not allowed to bring those um, those tricky issues of disagreement in. Instead, he thought, yeah, we bring them in, but we make space both for respectful disagreement and for common cause, and we find and we figure out where each of those is. I think he's a great example in that regard. So, folks who may yeah. want to wonder whether or not we're an anomaly, I think uh, there's a historical precedent to point to where we can connect some dots there. Um, let's talk about, you've got a chapter also in this book on Christian integrity and public discourse. I can't think of a more timely topic. I think the evangelical world is reeling post-Trump in this area. Uh, my hope is they're going to be interested in, in Williams and these kinds of approaches and conversations, if for no other reason than to rehabilitate their public image. I hope it goes deeper than that, 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 that we can do some soul searching. But what might Williams have to say about ways in which we might move forward? How do we speak to this necessity? We've got to develop a new moral theology that we can live out in the public square. What, how might he contribute to that for us today? Well, uh, not to use a, a too trite a phrase, but I think the first thing that Williams um, uh, contributes to our thinking in our time is a, a reminder that character matters. Character matters for Williams, and that's what that that idea of civility was all about for uh, for Williams. He thought the character in which we engage with, uh, from which we engage uh, one another, mattered. Character in leadership, character in citizens. That that's that's important. That's how we show uh, mutual respect uh, for one another, and that's a mutual respect that is in part a reflection of our gratitude to God for creating everything, including the other people, the stranger uh, with whom we're engaging. This idea that character matters uh, seems pretty obvious to me um, that we have lost sight of that in the last couple of years. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's, a, there's a vein in Christian theology, always has been, that says um, uh, politics is dirty business, and so um, Christians, to the degree that they're going to be engaged in, uh, in politics, don't need to get too worked up about um, the morality of politics. Focus on uh, accomplishing good ends for the cause. And I think a lot of that drove evangelical support for President Trump the last four years. I mean, some folks tried to um, characterize, uh, tried to depict President Trump as a, a deeply committed and faithful Christian. Um, that seems seemed to me to be fairly um, delusional because I think even uh, President Trump's own admission was that he was not uh, committed um, to a Christian life or attendance at Christian church. But a lot more evangelicals have argued the last four years, it's not about the character of the president. It's about the, the, the ends we stand to gain from supporting him, ends that are consistent with our moral concerns. Uh, Supreme Court justices, um, support to, uh, uh, defending the right to life, et cetera. Um, and there certainly has been that vein in Christian thought uh, throughout its history. Williams represents something different. Williams, uh, Williams is essentially saying the means matter. Uh, character matters. And our responsibility is not just to do the things that our faith tells us is right and good in terms of um, uh, ultimate projects, but to do them in the right way. Uh, to do them with respect, to do them with integrity, to do them with humility, and to not lose our sense of Christian piety on the way. And I think there he's a very helpful uh, reminder in our moment when 
I, I think many Christians are, are um, having to look in the mirror and ask where the sense of Christian character has gone in our, um, in our representation of the faith in public. Yeah, I, I just think we've lost sight of just basic credibility where people can't listen to your message unless the messenger that brings it is viewed as a credible source. And uh, again, I just hope that we can recover that sense that if we want to be heard and we think we have an important message to bring, it's going to fall on deaf ears unless we recapture that sense. And hopefully historical figures like uh, Roger Williams can help us uh, create a new moral theology for public discourse, whether it's in John, uh, what have you. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, if I could just say one more word about that. Too. Sure. A lot of the work that I've done in the last uh, 10 years has been, I, I don't think about civility in quite the same way as as Roger Williams, because I'm not a 17th century Puritan, but I really am indebted to him to in, in the work that I've um, been doing. And in the book, In Defense of Civility, I, I, I wanted to argue that um, something that we might call civility, some sense of public virtue, is absolutely essential to a healthy uh, democracy, um, that, um, that without a sense of mutual respect, without a commitment to honesty, integrity, and a certain amount of patience and humility with one another, democracy cannot flourish. Mm -hmm. One of the lovely conveniences is that if we commit to those as public virtues, they're actually pretty good Christian virtues too. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is arguing for in Ephesians 4. I think that's a primer on Christian ethics. Um, and the very same kinds of civil virtues are um, he's commending for virtue in church as well. So I say all of this just, just to second your point that not only do we have some repair to do um, in terms of the public image of Christianity after the last couple of years, we also have an opportunity to lead. If we can get our house in order as Christians and cultivate these virtues of other regard, um, we can model them for a democratic society that is uh, just starving uh, for them and suffering for their uh, lack. So I think this is an opportunity for a certain kind of witness too. Yeah, I think so. And for those of you watching the video version of this, <laughs> yeah. moments, uh, my guest did a very good job of keeping a straight face while my Siamese cat joined uh, the podcast video in the background. But uh, I love it. I love it. The other one. So can you think of anything else that you'd like to add as we uh, close this up? Is there anything else you would like to communicate either from Roger Williams uh, directly or how he has inspired some of your, your other thought and your other work? I, just to reinforce, I think um, the basic point that makes him so attractive to you, John, is that he gives us a third way. Too often when we're thinking about this relationship between our Christian convictions and our, our, our participation in public life, we think we have two options. Either hammer our Christian convictions at every opportunity uh, in, the most, in the bloodiest ways possible in public life, or swallow our Christian convictions and pretend that they're not that important uh, in order to be accepted uh, in public life. And Roger Williams models a third way. He says you can be, frankly, religiously dogmatic and still exhibit a really healthy respect for others and engage in cooperative ventures and friendships with others. And I think that third way, that, that gray area, um, is just, uh, um, duly, uh, just uh, extremely necessary uh, in our time and place. So if, if for no other reason, I think that's um, why Williams is worth another read. 
I can't think of a, a better way to, to summarize and close. So, uh, James, I thank you again for being my guest today. Oh, uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. My guest again has been uh, James Calvin Davis. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, including The Moral Theology of Roger Williams, some work on civility. Uh, in the program notes that accompany this, you'll find uh, those book titles and links. Uh, please seek them out. You will uh, benefit from them. And they are, I can't think of a time when they're more needful than uh, we have today. Again, this has been the podcast of Multi-Faith Matters. Uh, if you're listening, uh, whether on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or what have you, please take a moment and give us a rating so we can increase our audience. If you're on YouTube, don't forget to click and subscribe. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization. If you want to see resources like this continue and conversations about important, timely topics, uh, please uh, consider a donation to help us continue this work. Again, I'm John Moorhead for Multi-Faith Matters. Thank you for listening and for watching.